Good morning, David. It's great to have you back, bro. Welcome back from Milwaukee. You know, I forgot a very important welcome this morning. All right, so I need to make sure that I do it. I put it up here big on my notes so that I wouldn't forget. I, I want I want to welcome, for the first time, for both of them being in the congregation, Mr. and Mrs. McLean. Please stand up. Welcome back from your honeymoon. We love you both. They, uh, they went to another wedding last week, so they weren't able to be here. And then one another time, Euro was here, but Mo wasn't here. So I'm glad the first time I get to be here to be able to do that. But uh, love you. It's good to see you both, Mr. and Mrs. That's awesome. I love it. So, <clears throat> well, I'm going to go ahead and jump in. We're, we're uh, doing our Hall of Faith series. And I figured I'd start here. Uh, a little bit of a, a history thing. In the year 589 B.C., right? 589 B.C., the Babylonian Empire invades Israel, right? And they begin this massive siege of the city of Jerusalem. It's an unrelenting siege for two years. And in, in, at the end of the two years, the, the, the walls finally come down. They, the Babylonians get in. They come in, they tear down the temple, they take away captives, and they, they take them away back to Babylon. And you have, it's just left desolate. I mean, just, just the city is, is in ruins. People have, have scattered in different places. I mean, it's, it's horrible. Later you get the book of Nehemiah, which comes up, and, and different things, and they, they come back and rebuild the walls, and eventually rebuild the temple, and... But in this time, they come in and they've, they, the Babylonians come in and they take a lot of things from, uh, from the temple itself before it's destroyed. They take a lot of the cups and they take the plates and they take a lot of the gold and different relics from the city. And so some of the, the things most precious to the Jewish people, you know, the, the place where they, I mean, the, the temple where they worshipped God was completely destroyed. I mean, talk about demoralizing your enemies, right? And then you, what happens is they actually took away many of the, the children of the royal families and of the nobles, and, and they're, they're taking their own children into captivity, right? And it's, it's this utter pillaging. I mean, if you can imagine your society just being utterly destroyed and, and, and kind of your hopes and the things that you've held on to. And, and I don't know if you guys would think about it, but you think about how discouraging that would have to be. Like, why did our God let this happen? Yeah. Right? I mean, we, we get... There are hard things in life. Hard things happen. Right? And, and at different points, it, it's something like when we lose our job, or sometimes you, you have a breakup, or, or different things that happen. And they're very intensely emotional to us as individuals. But could you imagine, like, our civilization being destroyed, right? I mean, just just... The, the, the foundations of it, how demoralized, how discouraging that would feel, to feel like just defeated. Yeah. You see what I'm saying? And so this is what happens to these Jews. They're, they're taken away from their home, and they know that their foundations have been, honestly, just utterly destroyed yeah. in a lot of ways. And so we're going to be talking a, a, about a few of these individuals today. 
All right. And, and in the book, we're going to be in the book of Daniel this morning. <clears throat> but what happened was, excuse me, I got the same whatever other people have. So <clears throat> if I have to cough or sneeze or blow my nose or whatever, amen. But we're going to talk about some of these captives. And so these young, specifically, we're going to talk about three young men. There were four of them. But these young men were taken. And so King Nebuchadnezzar, uh, he, he brought them in and he said, all right, I'm going to take some of this royal family. They, they need to be good looking, right? And I, I don't want to see ugly people. I want to see only the good looking people. So he's like, they need to be good looking. I'm serious. It's, he said, they need to be intelligent. They, they need to be perceptive. They need to be wise. They need to be able to learn quickly. <clears throat> and so all of this, so he kind of picked them and he says, I'm going to teach them our, and, and educate them essentially. And they're going to eat from my own table. I'm going to actually provide their meals for them. So this is a bit of like an honor, a job, a responsibility. He's taking them in to his own household, essentially. And, and you can imagine they're, they're being trained up with other people as well. Other, other people who would eventually become scribes and officials and uh, different people of power and authority and, and with some persuasion. Right? So they, they have other peers. And these, these four men, we're going to talk about three of them, but four of them, they decide that we can't eat what the king eats. We're not going to eat his stuff because it could be unclean. We're still going to hold to our God. Yet my society is shattered, but I'm still going to hold to these like, dietary restrictions. Can you imagine that? Like Your world goes to pieces and you're like, oh, I'm still going to hold on to my diet. Right? <laughs> Sometimes holding on to a diet doesn't take much. You know, you eat one cookie and that's the end of your week. So, but, no, it's, it was more than that. It wasn't just a simple diet, but it was an act of faith in God, right? And so, these three men are, are you, you would know them as Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego, right? That's their, that's their Babylonian names. They even came in and they said, all right, you guys are getting new names. You can't keep your old names. Uh, before... They're Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. That's like a great trivia question, guys. You should, you should remember that and write it down. Because if you want a really good trivia question for so, how well someone knows their Bible, be like, what are Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego's Hebrew names? And you will stump 99% of people, if that. I mean, most of the time you'll stump me, because I often forget. But... <clears throat> So, anyways, we're looking at this scripture, and these, these, these guys, Hebrews, turn over to Hebrews 11 really quickly. Uh, actually, I'll, I'll read it for you if you don't want to flip, that's okay, because we're going to head right back to Daniel 3. <clears throat> but in, in Hebrews verse 11, these guys are mentioned in verse 34. It says this, I'll start in verse 32. He says, what more shall I say? I do not have time to tell you about Gideon or Barak, Barak or Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, gained what was promised, shut the mouths of lions, and quenched the fury of the flames, and escaped the edge of the sword. You know, the, the writer of Hebrews, he's talking about these three guys. They're, they've made it into the hall of heroes, the hall of faith. And so I want to talk about them today. I want to look at their character of faith and say, why should that inspire us? Right? What can we learn from it? So, turn over to Daniel 3. I'm going to start here. In verse 1. Now, 
I'll say this before I start. Like four or five times in here, it starts this like list of instruments multiple times. Um, I'm not going to read every single list of the instruments because there's like eight or nine of them and it's so repetitive. What I'm going to, I'm going to read it the first time and then I'm just going to say all of the instruments or the instruments and all types of music. Uh, if that bothers anybody, I'm sorry. Please feel free to talk to me about it afterwards. But um, I'm going to go ahead and, and start here in verse 1 of Daniel chapter 3. We're going to talk about these guys. In verse 1, it says, King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold 90 feet high and 9 feet wide and set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylonia. He then summoned the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all other provincial officials to come to the dedication of the image he had set up. So the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all other provincial officials assembled for the dedication of the image that the king Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before it. Then the herald loudly proclaimed, This is what... You are commanded to do, O people, nations and men of, of every language. As soon as you hear the sound of the horn and flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipes, and all kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold the king Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship will, be immediately, will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. Therefore, as soon as they heard the sound of the, mu- of the instruments and all kinds of music, all the people's, na- people's nations and men of every language fell down and worshipped the image of gold the king Nebuchadnezzar had set up. At this time, some astrologers came forward and denounced the Jews. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. Oh, come on, flattery. You have issued a decree, O king, that everyone who hears the sound of the, of the instruments and all kinds of music must fall down and worship the image of gold, and that whoever does not fall down and worship will be thrown into a blazing fire. But there are some Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who pay no attention to you, O king. They neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold you have set up. Furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these men were brought before the king. Nebuchadnezzar said, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold I have set up? Now when you hear the instruments and all kinds of music, If you are ready to fall down and worship the image I have made, very good. But if you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into the blazing furnace. What what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to save us from it. And he will rescue us from your hand. Okay. But even if he does not, we want you to know, okay, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. 
Then Nebuchadnezzar was furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. His attitude toward them changed. He ordered the furnace heated seven times hotter than usual and commanded some of the strongest soldiers in his army to tie up Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego and throw them into the blazing furnace. So these men, wearing their robes, trousers, turbans, and other clothes, were bound and thrown into the blazing furnace. The king commanded... The king's command was so urgent and the furnace so hot that the flames of the fire killed the soldiers who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, firmly tied, fell into the blazing furnace. I'm going to stop there. Point one. The people's representative. Right? You know, these men were the Jewish captives taken from their homeland. They were there. Nobody... They didn't really know the God of Israel. They didn't know the people of Israel. right? Because the people of Israel were supposed to be the people of God. And these are the only representation that many of them are going to know. right? Especially because they're before the king. And and they they know the other officials. And and in fact, they were were very well liked by the king and and what they did. And I'll, I'll talk a little bit about that later. But here you have these three guys and they're... They're there saying, we are, we are going to make sure we serve God. They, they, there's an aspect where they knew who they were, right? Despite the fact that their, their temple was destroyed, they no longer had their homes, who knows if they really had any sort of contact with their parents any longer, and yet they're saying, we're going to hold to our God. They, they were representing the people of Israel, and in a, in a time where, honestly, they didn't have much to be proud of or happy about, uh, they, they were, as Jews, they were going to represent God's people, right? And so, you see this, and here they are before the king. And I just, I want you to consider this scenario, alright? Your, your house is destroyed, your, your community is gone, here you are before a king who's just given you everything that you currently have. You, you literally eat food because he gives it to you. You have an education and a position in society that's essentially pretty well thought of. Like the, the aspect of everything you have is essentially from this king, right? And so their social position is one that they're now coming before this king. And, and they have a choice about who they're going to represent, right? Do they represent... And, and continue to serve the king? Or do they continue to represent the people of God and therefore God? Right? And, and this social pressure, I mean, can you just consider what it would be like? What sort of social pressure did they have on them to just, to just bow down and kind of, all right, I'll, I'll, I will kneel. Can you imagine just being like, in your heart, you're defiant. You're kneeling down and you're like, in my heart, I'm not really worshiping him, but I am bowing down. Like, what would that temptation have been like? To get on your knees before the king, but to then say, okay, I'm going to appease this guy. You know, and and he's going to think it's okay. But in my heart, I'm still really worshiping you. I'm still really worshiping you. Uh, You know, I I, I haven't really bowed down to him. But in actuality, they're not really, they're supposed to represent the people of God, right? 
Yeah. They're the people's representative. They're the people of God's representative. They're God's representative. Yeah. What do people see about God when God's people bow down to the social pressure in front of them? To the authority of the world versus the authority of God. Right? And, and, and we see that. I mean, come on. We all feel that, right? I mean, we've got to be able to relate to this. To some extent, in some way. But the thing is, their faith in God said, I will not bow down. I don't care the circumstances. I will not bow in any way, shape, or form. I want you to know that I will not serve your gods. What incredible faith. And, And we're not talking like, you know, just the... This is not just a little bit of some food I'm going to get sometimes. This isn't just my, my education or, or just a job. It, it, it comes down to their lives, right? And so we look at that, though. This was their faith. And I, I, I want to put it to you today. How's your faith doing? Right? How is your faith when it comes to bowing down to the social pressures of the world? The, the, the moral... Moral pressure, social pressure, social issues that come up in this world and, and some of the ways that we do that. How are you tempted to bow down? And it's not always an authority-based thing. Sometimes it's a pleasure or a humor-based thing. And, and I mean like this. What movies do you go and see that is completely okay? Well, you know, in my heart, I feel completely okay about it. Right? Just be real. How often does that happen? Or you can have the joke in the office that, that's made, or at work that's made, that, that's inappropriate, you know, that, that sometimes we... The truth is, sometimes they're funny. But the reason they're funny is because our heart is not... I'm just be straight serious. It's that we're not as serious about holiness. I mean, I've had times in my life where a joke is made and... and I think it's funny. I'm trying not to laugh. And I'm knowing in my heart, like, there's an aspect of this that I'm not taking my holiness. If it's really talking about a sin, a sin joke, I'm not serious enough about it. My faith is not where it needs to be right then. My conviction is not where it needs to be. You know, there's, there's other little social pressures. And, and, and here's, here's one that... People think it's a social issue, but it really is a moral issue. When it comes to how comments of men making or saying to women, that other guys don't stand up and say anything when something incredibly inappropriate is said. That is not a social issue. That is a moral issue. Depravity and lust, objectification of women is absolutely wrong for a man of God. It's not a social issue. It is a moral issue. It's not something to laugh about. It's something to be serious about. So you see it, address it as a man of God, and don't bow down to the social pressures of society. Stand on the moral ground of God's authority. That's wrong. It is wrong. It destroys our society. It is unrighteous. It destroys relationship. It creates a wrong way of thinking in men's minds. And honestly, it's a man's job to stand up. First, women need to advocate for themselves, but you know what? Honestly, it's hard. 
So, brothers, I want to encourage you. Man, I want to encourage you. You need to stand up and say something. Do not bow down to this false God. I want us to make sure that we are the men of God who stand up for what is right in the world and not laugh off the joke about, you know, a woman is this way, ha ha ha, whatever, whatever the joke's going to be. Take it seriously. Respect, humility, all of these things are what men of God do. Amen? Amen. I want us to be clear on that. You are the representative of God. We are the people's the, the people's representative, we represent the people of God today. Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego said, I will not, we will not bow down. They did not forget who they served. You know, another, one of the things that I want to throw out there is, is work. Sometimes, and, and I want us to take this conviction forward. There are times when in different jobs and different people, and, and there are certain circumstances that we can understand that there are... Certain jobs you can't change. You know, certain jobs you have certain expectations on you. And depending on your level of responsibility. But how hard do we really fight to make sure that our jobs aren't our gods? That God is our God. Right? You know, that our our time spent being able to be with the body or being able to spend quality time with disciples is not taken over by our jobs. Right? Because ultimately, I mean, spiritually, you're storing up treasure in heaven. One day that job, I mean, honestly, will that business even be around in 20 or 30 years? Who knows? Maybe it'll last a couple hundred years, but in the end, it's all going to burn, right? I mean, I said that with a little bit of humor, but I say it in all seriousness. I mean, it's not really going to matter. What's going to matter to you? It's going to matter whether you make it to be with God or whether you don't, right? And I, I remember there was a time where I did work for Starbucks. I was trying to become a, a store manager. I didn't know if the ministry was going to work out for me. And so I was, I was, I'd applied for a job and I was working to be uh, up to an assistant store manager. And I was a supervisor for the store and, and I was trying to go after it. But when I interviewed, I told, I told the guy, his name was Paul. He was, I told him, I said, I go to this church. This is my first priority. I need you to know that this is what's going to be first. I will work my tail off for you. But this is in the interview. Like they say, don't bring up like spiritual things. Sometimes you can't ask any religious questions in an interview. Uh, I, I just try to get that out of the way. And I just tell them up front. I'm not trying to like say, hey, please come to church with me right away. Uh, I'm just saying, look, I need you to know that this is where I stand on this. That this is what's going to be most important to me. And when the issue, di- I did get hired. And when the issue did come up, I let him know, hey, I'll work this for you, but I did tell you when I got hired, and if I need to fill out any paperwork, I'll do it, but I will not work these other times. Please do not schedule me them, because this is what's important to me. And I made sure that my God is God, not my work. I wasn't going to bow down because I was afraid that I might lose my job. If I lost my job, I lost my job. You know, and it's a little harder when we feel like, hey, I've got a whole family to provide for and all of that. I get it. But we also want to make sure that we do our best. Right? We do our best to be with the people who are going to encourage us in our faith. Because ultimately we want to make it to heaven and we know that Christianity is not a solo sport. Amen? Amen. So I just say that to remember, even to your boss and the people you work with. 
You are the people's representative. What will they think of your faith and of God? Because Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego, their faith got them some pretty heavy consequences. Right? But they, they said, we will not bow down. Our God could save us, but even if he doesn't, we still will not bow down to you. Right? And that's amazing faith right there. They never forgot who they served. So my second point is this. These guys, we ended off where they're thrown into the fiery furnace, right? My second point is, the servants of God prevail. The servants of God prevail. Look at Daniel 3. I'm going to pick up again. I'm going to start from verse 13. And I want to, I want to look at this. In verse 13. Going back. Furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these men were brought before the king. And Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold I have set up? Now when when you hear the sound of the instruments and all kinds of music, if you are ready to fall down and worship the image I have made, very good. But if you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into, the, into a blazing furnace. Then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied in the king, to the king, Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we do not defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we, we serve is able to save us from it. And he will rescue us from your hand, O king. But even if he does not, we want you to know, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And his attitude toward them changed. He ordered them, he ordered the furnace heated seven times hotter than usual and commanded some of the strongest soldiers in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into the blazing furnace. So these Men, wearing their robes, trousers, turbans, and other clothes, were bound and thrown into the blazing furnace. The king's command was so urgent and the furnace so hot that the flames of the fire killed the soldiers who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And and these three men, firmly tied, fell into the blazing furnace. Then, King Nebuchadnezzar leapt to his feet in amazement and asked his advisors, Weren't there three men that were tied up and thrown into the fire? They replied, certainly, O king. He said, look, I see men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed. And the fourth looks like a son of God. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the blazing furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. And so Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire, and the satraps, prefects, governors, and royal advisors crowded around them. They saw the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor was a hair of their head singed. Their robes were not scorched, and there was no smell of fire on them. Then Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted in him and defied the king's command and were willing to give up their lives 
rather than serve or worship any god except their own god. Therefore I decree that the people of any nation or language who say anything against the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego will be cut into pieces and their houses be turned into piles of rubble. For no other god can save in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. No, we left off. These guys were thrown into their death, right? They said, we will not serve you. And my point was that the title of the point is the servants of God prevail. They were expected to die and they didn't. But you know what's crazy? Had they died, they still would have prevailed. Their faith, they, they wouldn't have lost because at the end, where do they go? Right? The fires that they experienced were short. But what's, what's waiting has is, is got to be a lot worse. Right? And so we look at these scriptures, though. These were men who were exceptional servants. In fact, they, they rose through the ranks very quickly. If you read earlier in Daniel and some of the other scriptures later, Daniel and Meshach and Shadrach and Abednego were four guys who who were very prominent. They were known for being exceptionally intelligent. Everything they did, they did exceptionally well. They were they worked in a way that glorified their God. In, in all things. People elevated them quickly because of their work and how hard they worked and how reliable they were. They were great servants of the king. So when when we talk about this mentality of service, right, we all most of us have jobs at least. Students, if you're a student, your job is to go to school, so then you should do good, well at that as well, be exceptional. But we look at this, and you see that he's saying, they were great, they were great, but they did. But when the time came to serve either God or to serve man, they made sure they served God the best. Yeah. Most. Yeah. And, you know, we, we, we look at this, though, and we see that their ultimate service was to God, not to the king of Babylon. But they did make sure they did a great job. They didn't know if God would save them. But their faith was that it doesn't matter. How do you guys do these days? When the trials come and the decisions to, to, to go one way or the other, how is your faith? Is it to hold on to God or to, to make some, some excuses, Right? Because here's the thing, I believe in you and God believes in you. Because you can do great things. And ultimately, what ended up happening? They got thrown in, God saved them, God was glorified. In fact, to the point where the king is now saying, if anyone talks bad about this God, they're going to die. Alright? They will die. And some translations of it even say that their house would be torn down and turned into a garbage pit or a refuge pit, a place where people dumped their stuff, you know. I mean, it's a, this was a serious thing. It's like nobody is going to talk bad about this God because they had great faith. How is your faith? Your faith, your faith can inspire people. Whether it be at work, or at school, or at home even. Parents with your kids. Your faith can inspire people to great things. 
It can glorify God because people will be inspired by your faith, inspired by your God, and they can and will praise God. But does that mean that the Christian life will always prevail in this life? No. Let's just be clear. I'm not teaching you that you hold on to God and everything will go well for you next week. It's just going to turn around. No. It may take months or years. You know, the, the prevailing may come at the end. But there is a great chance that it will come at this time. There are many stories. There are many stories that it happens. But in all of this, we look at their faith and they were unwilling to bow down. These guys did great. They, they won a great victory for God in their faith. But the Christian life is not always that way. I have, a, I have a, an awesome book that I wanted to read the beginning of um, for you. And it's titled, Will the Real Heretics Please Stand Up? Uh, this is a crazy book. Read it as a young Christian. I was crazy convicted by it. Um, I thought I need to be more like intense in my faith because I was inspired by the men who come before. And it's really about early Christians. And so what I'm going to read is actually um, it's from an early letter. So, so early in the first or late in the first, maybe in the early in the second century. Uh, it was a letter from the, the Christian church in Smyrna. Right? And they're writing about the persecution of Christians. And they're talking about what was happening to them. And they're, they, they've been brought in by the governor. And we're going to read about one of the early church fathers. And what he, he experienced. And so they wrote this letter out to all of the churches that this is what happened. This is how this, this was handled. Right? And, and it inspired me because extreme faith inspires faith. Right? Holding to your faith inspires faith. And so we're going to read this. It says, As the chariots rumbled through the stone-paved streets of Smyrna, the prisoner could already hear the roar of the frenzied crowd in the arena. Scavenger dogs followed the chariot through the streets, barking wildly. Olive-skinned children scurried out of the way and their eyes wide with excitement. Nameless faces peered out of windows along the streets. Halting outside the massive walls of the arena, the guard brusquely dumped the prisoner out of the chariot as though he were a sack of garbage, injuring the prisoner's leg. For weeks, the public had clamored for this man's arrest and execution. But he hardly looked like a dangerous criminal. A frail old man, his face etched with wrinkles. His hair and beard were as white as the clouds that dotted the Mediterranean sky that afternoon. And as the aged prisoner limped into the arena under armed guard, word quickly spread through the crowds that this was Polycarp, the vile criminal whose death they had come to see, his crime. He was the local leader of the superstitious cult known as the Christians. And as the crowd roared with bloodthirst of excitement, the soldiers led the prisoner to the stand where the Roman proconsul was seated. And as the proconsul stared at this limping old man, his face flushed with embarrassment. So this was the dangerous criminal who had caused such an uproar. Just a gentle old man. The proconsul in his purple robe, flapping in the breeze, leaned forward in his seat, privately addressed the elderly prisoner, saying, The Roman government does not make war on old men. Simply swear by the divinity of Caesar, and I will let you go. I can't do that, 
Well, then simply shout, away with these atheists, and that will be sufficient. Since the Christians had no temples or images of any god, the Romans assumed that they were atheists. The prisoner walked calmly, stretched out his wrinkled arm, turned in a circle with a sweeping gesture towards the hate-filled crowd, gazed intently toward them, toward heaven, and shouted, Away with these atheists! The proconsul was momentarily taken aback by the prisoner's response. Though he had done what was commanded, the proconsul knew from the reaction of the crowd that he, he dare not release Polycarp yet. Curse Jesus Christ, he demanded. For, for a few moments, Polycarp stared with piercing brown eyes into the stern countenance of the proconsul. He then replied, replied calmly, For 86 years I have served Jesus, and he has never wronged me in any way. How then can I possibly curse my king and savior? The crowd, unable to hear the conversation, was growing impatient with the, the delay. So the proconsul anxiously urged the prisoner again, Swear by the divinity of Caesar. Since you keep pretending that you don't know what I am, let me simplify your task. I declare without shame that I am a Christian. If you'd like to learn what Christians believe, set a time and I will tell you. Fidgeting nervously, the proconsul blurted back, Don't try to persuade me, persuade them, pointing to the crowd. Polycarp glanced at the faceless mob who was eagerly waiting for the bloody entertainment to begin. No. I won't cheapen the teachings of Jesus by trying to persuade such a throng. The proconsul shouted angrily back, Don't you know I have wild animals at my disposal? I will unleash them on you immediately unless you repent. Well, then unleash them, Polycarp replied. There was no fear in his voice. Whoever heard of repenting from what is good in order to do what is evil. The proconsul was accustomed to intimidating even the strongest, most hardened criminals. But this old man was getting the best of him. He laughed back at the prisoner. Since wild animals don't seem to scare you, know here and now that I, have, I will have you burned alive if you do not immediately denounce Jesus Christ. Infused with the Holy Spirit, Polycarp, Polycarp was now beaming with joy and confidence. You threaten me with a mere fire that can burn for an hour and then goes out. Haven't you heard of the fire of the coming judgment, of the eternal punishment reserved for the ungodly? Why do you keep delaying? Do whatever you want with me. It wasn't supposed to have worked this way. The proconsul was supposed to be the mighty conqueror, with the prisoner on his knees begging for mercy. But this prisoner, an old man, had vanquished the proconsul. The proconsul sank back into his seat, and humiliated his feet. Because of the vastness of the stadium, heralds were sent to several different stations throughout the arena to announce what Polycarp had said. When his final statement was announced, a wave of fury swept the crowd. They would do with him what they wanted. Screaming for Polycarp's death, they spilled out of their seats into the corridors and through the exits, running wildly through the city streets. They gathered wood from wherever they could find it. They looted stores and even stole the firewood piles from the public baths. Then they thronged back into the arena, their arms laden with fuel for execution pyre. They piled the wood around an upright stake so which soldiers began to nail Polycarp's limbs. However, he calmly assured the soldiers, Leave me as I am. The one who gives me strength to endure the fire will also enable me to remain motionless against the stake without having to be secured. After allowing Polycarp to pray, the soldiers lit the wood 
by burning Polycarp, the people of Smyrna thought that they had blotted out his name forever, bringing an end to the hated superstition called Christianity. But like the proconsul, they grossly underestimated the vitality and conviction of Christians. Rather than intimidating other Christians, the death of Polycarp inspired them. Rather than disappearing, Christianity grew. Ironically, what the Romans couldn't accomplish was eventually accomplished by professing Christians themselves. Today, the name of Polycarp has been largely forgotten. And the Christianity of his day is unknown to most Westerners. It's true. We know very little of the faith and the zeal and the passion and the vitality of the early Christians. We, we know so little of their story. So little of their faith. The fires that burned, not just external but internally, of, of faith in the Holy Spirit, of what they would do. And, and we look at trials and think it's hard because people don't want to talk about Christianity with us. The stories of their faith are incredible. I'd encourage you to get to know them. Study out some of the early Christians. I believe in you, church. I believe in what we can do. I believe that we can make a huge difference in this city. I believe that our faith will inspire generations. But the question I want to leave with you today really is this. That was their story. What will be your story?